Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. We just wrapped up our series on types of the nativity, and this week we have a Q&A episode with Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Here, they're going to be answering questions about church members and their use of media, election and whether it's individual or covenantal, postmillennialism and especially issues surrounding the year 70 AD and the preterist position. And lastly, they will discuss what the church should be doing on the issue of abortion. And I do have timestamps down in the show notes for those questions and answers. As always in the show notes, you can also find a link to our YouTube channel, where right now we are in the midst of a series on a biblical theology of music with Peter Lightheart. We also do have an upcoming online workshop with Alistair Roberts on the Tabernacle and the Temple, and there's a link there where you can register. And in general, it is going to be a busy season for us at Theopolis. Next week, our fellows will be coming in from all over the country to complete their training with us. And we also have several events coming up, including intensive courses and regional courses. And again, you can find information for all of that at the links down there in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts answering your questions. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and Jeff Myers. James B. John, who is usually part of our podcast team, is unfortunately unable to make it today. He's ill. Uh, We pray and hope that he'll be back with us soon. Brian Motes, as usual, our media director at Theopolis, is in the background recording. We finished up our series on types of the nativity that we did over the, over the uh, Advent Christmas in, uh, into the Epiphany season. And we're kind of in a hiatus. We're going to begin a series in a couple of weeks on uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we're going to spend probably a couple of months in Colossians. James, uh, Jeff Myers rather has a book on James uh, coming out, a commentary on James coming out later this year. And as we get closer to the time when that book's going to be released, uh, we're going to spend some time in the podcast going over uh, the uh, letter to, letter of James, and we look forward to that. Jeff has been teaching on James and uh, thinking about James for a very long time. Finally had a sabbatical recently, was able to devote focused time to finishing off the manuscript and uh, look forward to that being more widely public than it has been. Uh, Jeff's work on James has been extremely helpful. Hey, Jeff, if you don't mind, uh, if you could give us one or two tidbits of things that uh, we can look forward to in your commentary. So the title of the commentary is going to be Ancient Wisdom for Today's Christian Dissidents. And I see a unity in the book of James that is often not recognized, and that is it has to do with the trials and temptations of the very early church, the first fruits church, as James calls it in chapter one, the trials and temptations that go along with persecution and with marginalization in their world. Uh, So the wisdom of James is all about how to navigate those temptations and trials, especially the temptation to strike back, to be actually literally violent with regard to their persecutors. So I think that context of the dispersion of the early church from Jerusalem in Acts chapter seven and eight, uh, after the uh, after the death, after the execution of Stephen, gives us a context for understanding a lot of what would otherwise be kind of mysterious and free floating uh, wisdom in the book. 
Yeah, thanks. And and it would be, uh, I assume that a lot of commentators lacking that context think of James using hyperbole or some of the references to violence, uh, cautions about violence are more metaphorical than than literal. Is that is that the way that commentators tend to go when they don't have that historical context in mind? Yes, that's exactly what happens. And of course, there is some application to us in terms of our anger with other people. Uh, but when James talks about the anger of man not accomplishing the justice of God, he's talking about anger that breaks forth into unbiblical and unlawful violence. And he, he especially deals with that in chapter four when he talks about there having been actually killings involved. And and if you understand that in the context of the book of Acts, you understand that uh, Christians are being round up, they're being imprisoned, they're being tortured, and they're being killed as Stephen is, and they're trying to kill Paul and his followers. So it's not unreasonable or it's not outlandish to think that Christians would be tempted to strike back and to use the same kinds of tactics that their their pursuers were using against them. And, that, and James uh, says that is not the wisdom from above. That's not the way to do things. So, Yeah, you can imagine the early Christians beginning to form militias in order to, uh, to protect, protect the uh, persecuted. Really look forward to that discussion. I really look forward to having the commentary. You've been working on this, as I said, for a long time. And I think in the providence of God, the, the commentary is more relevant. It was relevant when you first started working on James. It's more relevant now than it was at the time you started working. That's interesting. I mean, that's providentially have been put off, uh, but it certainly is going to have a bigger impact now, given our current situation than it would have had, you know, 10 years ago. Right. I want to mention too, that Alistair is going to do a solo podcast next week, and he's going to be talking about the tabernacle. And that will be a, a preview and a teaser for a Theopolis workshop that he'll be offering in uh, a month or two. I don't know the exact dates, Alistair, maybe you can tell us, but he's going to be talking about the tabernacle and the temple or just the tabernacle, Alistair? Both the tabernacle and the temple in relation to creation themes. And when is that? Uh, when does the workshop start? It starts, I think, in the first week of February. Okay, great. And anything you want to tell us about that, uh, give us a teaser now about the course and so people can start uh, signing up. Certainly. When we think about the tabernacle and the temple, on the one hand, they're central elements of the story. So much of the book of Exodus, for instance, is devoted to the building of the tabernacle. And then when we get to First Kings, the beginning of that very much leads up to the building of the temple, much as at the end of Second Samuel. And I think more generally in scripture, beyond the significance within story of the building of the tabernacle and the temple, as realities, their shadow is cast over the entirety of the text at many different points. We might think about Jeremiah's temple sermon and the indictment against the temple that has become like a den of robbers. We could think about Ezekiel's visionary temple, the way that Jesus speaks about the temple, particularly in his final week, the cleansing of the temple. And when we think about the scripture more broadly from the very first pages where we have the Garden of Eden as a sort of sanctuary realm to the very end where there is no longer any temple because the lamb himself dwells in the midst of this um, holy of holies like city. We have the theological realities of temple at, and tabernacle at the very heart. They're the means by which we understand, for instance, 
what the incarnation means, what it means for God to dwell with us, how we understand our own bodies within Pauline theology, our bodies are described as the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what I'm trying to do within the course is to give people a greater, firmer handle upon themes that are absolutely essential to biblical theology as a whole, and also which help us to understand why the biblical narrative takes the form that it does. Why is, for instance, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 such a pivotal event within redemptive history? Why is something like the destruction in, um, to the, by the Babylonians again something that has such an immense significance theologically? And then to think more broadly about how this informs our ecclesiology, how it informs our understanding of Christ, theology more broadly, in theology proper, and then even going into issues like um, how could we practice church architecture in a way that is informed by some of the principles that we draw from the tabernacle and temple? How do we think about artistry and the skill of human beings in fashioning the world in terms of the temple and the tabernacle and the way that they play in the redemptive historical narrative more generally? Great. Thank you. I believe that the uh, workshop sign-up is already available. You can sign up for the workshop uh, on theopolisinstitute.com. And as Alistair said, we'll be starting that uh, workshop. It goes six weeks, one session a week, and uh, start up in early February. For this session, uh, as you can tell from the leisurely pace with which we began, uh, we're going to uh, have kind of a leisurely discussion today, not looking at a particular text, but as we Occasionally do, we've taken questions from uh, those who are listening to podcasts from you, and we're going to uh, discuss some of those questions. Uh, we have a list, had a list of uh, nearly 30 questions, I think, uh, that uh, Brian circulated to us, and there's no way we can get through all of those. I uh, selected six or seven of them that uh, we'll aspire to finish to discuss over the next uh, 30 or 40 minutes. Probably won't get through all of those, but uh, at least we'll get to some of them and we'll have another Q&A session in a few months and uh, try to pick up some more of your questions. But let me begin with the first question for today's episode. Uh, as a pastor or lay minister, this, uh, this person asks, what would you do if you knew the large swath of your church was being discipled by hours of radio talk and internet memes every week, along with only minimal study of scripture and participation in worship? My first thought, I'm really curious to hear Jeff's answer to this because Jeff surely has dealt with this in his own church as a, uh, an active pastor. But my first thought in this here is uh, a twofold, I guess. One is, I think this point needs to be made from the pulpit in preaching, that people need to have their ears tuned to the Word of God primarily, and they need to, that might means tuning down or even tuning out voices other than that. I think it needs, it needs to be something that is explicitly addressed and not just addressed once because this is a, uh, you know, the competition for people's attention. That's, that's what social media and the internet are about. It's, it's a, the, the business model, it's all about capturing attention and, and profiting from uh, attention. So uh, people need to learn discipline and that needs to be addressed regularly from the pulpit. The other thing I thought it was maybe a, uh, a book study of some, there are a number of studies of the dangers of social media, the, the things that, the way that social media distracts us, 
uh, the way that it uh, kind of shapes the way we think and the way we react to things. Uh, do a book study on one of those with a, with a group in the church or even have like a weekend seminar, bring somebody in who's uh, thought a lot about this and present something to your people. I think uh, the question is an extremely important one uh, because of the, uh, just we're immersed and surrounded by all these, uh, all these alternatives to the word of God, all these other words that are competing for our attention. I'll second the two things you said, Peter. I mean, I've talked about it from the pulpit uh, and we've talked about it in adult Sunday school classes. And one of the things I've done with individuals when I've kind of discerned that this is going on, I mean, it's really, no one's going to just come out and confess it. Usually you kind of get an idea and in talking with them, and then you can probe a little bit about how much screen time they're uh, they're, they're doing on their computer or their phone or their iPad uh, is, is and I've had some success with this is, is that that old book by Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's not up to date with regard to the, as you said, the, the marketing techniques of social media these days, but it does open their eyes to the fact that what they're often getting is not so much really news, but entertainment. And so that's helped begin discussions with uh, certain people, certain men, uh, leaders of the family about these kinds of issues. Worship participation is included in this question. If, if people aren't participating in Sunday worship, that has to be addressed. There's, and it, it's, it's especially a difficult issue now with all the COVID regulations and stuff, is that people that don't get their regular dose of scripture and scripture reading and preaching and singing and psalms in the church, well, what are they doing? They're online somewhere, and uh, that's that's not healthy at all. Um, I've had to address individuals about that with varying degrees of success. <laughs> so I, I don't know if there's any other way to deal with this other than from the pulpit in Sunday school classes. I, we haven't done any kind of, like you suggested, a, you know, a one-off kind of seminar uh, conference, that's actually a pretty good idea. I'll think about that. I think one of the things that people are looking for from these things is a sense of connection, of being in touch. When we know that the news is out there, when we know that there is this community of people talking about these current events, sharing these memes, we want to be part of it. And to actually disengage from that, you feel disconnected, not just from what's happening, but from other people. And so much of what's taking place, I think, results from a sense of alienation from community more generally. And that can be a substitute community, the context of the internet and sharing these things. One of the things that I think many pastors, particularly from an older generation, may struggle to appreciate is just how much the formative primary communities in which people are being shaped and um, having their perspectives on reality formed, those are no longer in real life communities for many, many people, especially young people, but also a lot of older people who are being formed by um, talk radio, by um, sharing of internet memes, whatever it is. And until we actually think about the communal levels of these things, we think about the way in which this is a substitute, um, a SATS form of community that is 
replacing the real thing. It's getting in the way of actual connection with real people and is hooking people on a spectacle instead, the shared spectacle. I don't think we'll be able to get at the heart of it because we have as human beings a hunger for community, a hunger to be in touch with other people and to have a sense of um, connection. And news, I think, could be a very powerful means for that because the big news events of the day, the spectacle of politics, the spectacle of sport, whatever it is, is a means by which a great number of people can be brought together in a sense of a common focus. And the more that that is offered to people through the media, which are not particularly participatory, um, and then through social media, which are very participatory, the more that people can actually pursue that rather than immediate in real life, in-person community, which doesn't offer the same rush of being connected to a large group of people. In real life, community tends to be more obscure. It tends to be less fast paced. There's less of a spectacle. There's less excitement. And so people can often, I think, replace that for something that is a lesser substitute, but which promises far more exhilaration and excitement and a sense of being part of something big. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I was going to, I was thinking of a, of a related idea. I mean, I'm just to uh, react to one specific point you made, Alistair, uh, I am in that older quadrant. And so I just find myself befuddled uh, by some of the, uh, some of the things that go on and some of the ways that people are attached to this. I mean, I, uh, when uh, the, the new, uh, when Mark Zuckerberg was presenting this uh, this new meta reality uh, and had this little video of people adopting certain um, personas in this virtual space, playing cards and doing all this stuff. It had absolutely no attraction to me. I, I have no, no interest at all in that. Uh, I talked to some of my kids who are in their thirties. They're not, they're not uh, sucked into, I wouldn't say they're sucked into internet and uh, social media culture in a, in a bad way, but they found that attractive. I mean, some of my, some of my kids found that kind of, that kind of world attractive and they would like to try it out. And it just held, it held no, it held no interest to me. So I, yeah, the generational thing is, I think is an important one, but the point I was going to make though, was uh, along with the idea of the alternative community, I think there's a, there's a question of kind of priority of what, uh, just a priority of what is important to know and to latch onto. And there's the illusion that the constantly shifting panorama, the spectacle, as you as you described it, the spectacle of uh, current events, that that's the really real and that's what's really important about what's going on right now. Rather than, for example, you know, getting to know your neighbors uh, or serving in some capacity at an old folks' home. I mean, the the mission of the church and the ministry of the church. Part of what has to happen, the deeper the deeper transformation that has to happen, is a is a shift in people's understanding of what what is really significant and important in their world and in their life, and the the, the things that are most spectacular are not necessarily going to be the things that are most important. The other dimension to this, banking off of what Elser said about the attraction of a community online, a, a social community, is that it seems as if often, and, and I've noticed this with people in church uh, that. To seek community in the social media arena is largely 
it, it can be at least a way to escape re- the responsibility and the hard work of community with face-to-face people. Um, and it's just too easy to think of yourself as a quote unquote community with people online that might be uh, about political alignments. Uh, it might be about, you know, uh, hobbies, you know, gardening or dogs or something. But what, what you're escaping from is the, the difficulty and the, the self-denial that you need to engage in when you're actually in a community with people. So I, 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 maybe this is wrong and maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I see young people, and again, I'm in this older category too, but I see young people at church having a hard time assimilating into the church uh, and standing, you know, standing off to one side, kind of looking around. The older folks or the middle-aged and older folks are are milling around and talking to people, and they're having a hard time with it. And I can't, I can't, but think that it, a lot of it has to do with this is this is an this face to face this material kind of interaction with people is difficult if if all you've been doing is interacting online. I think picking up on one of the points that Peter made, one of the claims that the church is making is that we are when we're worshiping, when we're spending time together, we are getting in contact with real reality, that this is the deepest and most important reality in our world. And for that reason, we prioritize it. We take this more seriously than anything else. We put other things to one side and give it the space and time that it needs. And yet within our day and age, there is this competition about what is really real, what community really matters. I think many people have been formed in the very ways in which they form their sense of self have changed. And so registering in the grand spectacle that is shared on social media can become increasingly important. You can think about the way that someone has a holiday and have they really had a holiday until the pictures from the holiday have been shared on social media, seen and liked. It's a sense of registering it within this social space confers reality upon what you've experienced, because yourself is increasingly something that is seen within the mirror of social media. I've compared this to a traditional society where you have no mirror, you've never actually seen your face, you just have running water and you've never actually seen a proper reflection. And then someone brings the mirror to your village and suddenly you have this reflexivity in your sense of yourself and it can lead to anxiety and trauma when you begin to see yourself as other people see you when you wake up in the morning. Now, social media is very similar. It's presenting a social image of ourselves, how we're liked, how we're followed, how we're appreciated, how we're interacted with. And suddenly we become acutely aware of how we register within this realm, which becomes the really real for our construction of ourselves. And I think the community that that offers is in many respects in direct competition with the community of the really real that is offered in the church and presented to us as that in which we need to ground ourselves, out of which we need to form ourselves and from which we need to draw the resources to understand our world. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point. I mean, you, this may sound grand, but I think it does come down to a kind of ontological question. You know, what 
competing visions of what what is truly real. Uh, let me move on. We could we could talk about that for hours. Question about election, not uh, political election, but uh, divine election. Is election primarily individual or corporate covenantal? Uh, is there even a primary, or are these aspects equal? And uh, just to get kick things off, I would uh, I'd want to distinguish a couple of different things that are being asked there. As I as I understand the question, uh, there's a question of individual versus corporate. Does uh, God elect from eternity? Does he choose from eternity certain individuals to be members of the body of Christ and to be part of the eternal company of those in the new creation individuals, or does he, does he eternally elect that company of people? And I think there, the question has to do with, uh, I, I don't think, I, I think the latter question is correct, that there's not, not a priority primary, uh, we're elected in Christ, we're elected together in Christ. And uh, more fundamentally, I don't think there's a there's a neat distinction between individual and and corporate reality, corporate identity. I mean, we are uniquely individual, but we, we're uniquely individual in part because we are unique parts of certain kinds of communities, and we have a we have a certain mix of communities that uh, form and shape us. That's part of what makes us a unique individual. So they're just, I think they're more perspectively related to use John Frame's terms than they are separated. The other point that the question seems to bring up is a question about whether election is primarily eternal election to eternal salvation, or if election is election, covenantal election. The way that I uh, I've typically have used and heard that used is God elected Abraham, God elected Israel. And Israel is the chosen people, and that's true regardless of whether everyone in the in the people of Israel is eternally elected to salvation. So there's a kind of historical election that's real and does bring people who are elected into the into the company of the people of God. They are really brought into a relationship, a covenant relation with God, and yet it's not the same as an eternal election to ultimate salvation. So I think in answer to the question, I don't, I don't think we can prioritize individual or corporate. And uh, I, I also, again, in, want to introduce that other distinction be- between eternal election to salvation and God's election of Israel and then of the church. When we're talking about corporate election, I think it's also important to recognize that our election is in Christ, that it's not just an election of some body of individuals or uh, society. It's the fact that Christ is the chosen one, and we enjoy the status of um, being in Christ, and in him we are chosen. And that status is one that means that we gain confidence about our standing with God and our election as we relate to Christ. And so it's actually that looking out beyond ourselves to him that we can have confidence of our standing with with God, not on the basis of something within ourselves or some dark decree that we don't know exactly where we stand relative to it. The ground of everything is our standing in Christ, who is the elect one. And so as such, the decree of election is not some hidden thing primarily. It's something that is revealed and known through the work and person of Christ and in relationship to him. And in relationship to his body, his church, since we're incorporated into Christ and his body, the whole Christ, 
this is the way we judge people. This is the way we look at other people. Are they baptized? Are they members of a local body? Are they seeking to follow Christ? Do they confess their faith in Christ? And if that's the case, then they are treated as part of the chosen people. To go beyond that and to look for something, like you say, else, or something secret, something hidden, I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it's it's biblical. Uh, Paul addresses these churches and tells them all that they've been chosen in Christ, uh, because that's the only way, that's the only thing we as creatures, as temporal, finite pastors, that's what we have access to. Um, and that, we believe, also is a true indicator of God's uh, relationship and favor with his people. Yeah, some of what Alistair was saying uh, sounded Bartian. That's not, a, that's not a slam. That's just a, an observation. And the, the idea that uh, Christ, that the decree is not hidden. I mean, Bart uses uh, language along the lines of Christ is himself the word of God. He is the decree of God. And so we have, as you say, it's not an invisible secret thing, but it's, it's the son and it's union with the son. That is, uh, that's what election is too. The other Bardian thing that I've been uh, impressed by, the other Bardian point is the idea that election Bart seems to seems to set these in opposition. I would want to say that there are two different dimensions or facets of election. Election is not just election of human beings to a certain end, not just election of Christ as the elect one in whom we are elected. But uh, Bart says that election is God's own self-determination. God determines himself to be God for us, determines himself to be God for Israel in the first instance. He determines himself to be God for uh, his people in Christ. And so it's a commit God's own commitment to be everything we need uh, to come into union with him and, and to enjoy his communion with him through all eternity. So I think that that is, a, I, that's an important dimension of it. I, I think my sense is that I don't know Bart's doctrine of election in great detail, but my sense is that Bart says it's God's own self-determination, it's election in Christ, as opposed to election of individuals or of the church. I wouldn't want to pose those two against each other. Maybe Bart doesn't, in fact. But I think that the dimension of God's own choice and his decision to act and be God in a certain way within the history that he's decreed, I think that's an important dimension of what, what's happening in election. I think one thing that helped me think about election is reflecting upon the way that the scripture presents this to us often we can treat the scripture as a sort of um, realm in which we mine theological propositions. So we read Ephesians chapter one, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heaven, heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We read that and we think Paul is teaching us about the doctrine of election, but that isn't actually what Paul is doing there. It's not a set of theological propositions saying the Lord before um, all things chose us or chose a certain set of individuals in Christ. That's not what he's saying. Rather, he's engaging in an act of praise and calling for the Ephesians to join with him and to recognize their implication within that act of God before the foundation of the world. And the more that we recognize the way that the theology that Paul 
gives of election or the theology that we find of election in places like Deuteronomy, that these are directed statements. These are statements in which the hearer is implicated. These are means of assurance and um, means by which to understand where you stand relative to God. Um, that helps, I think, diffuse a lot of the anxiety that can often attend the doctrine of election when we think of it merely as an abstract teaching that rather than a declaration of praise in which we are implicated or a statement concerning us that we're supposed to find assurance from. Here's a, a question about eschatology, and uh, this is uh, from a listener. I'm coming around to a post-millennial view, but uh, struggle as it seems as if all of scripture is pointing to 70 AD. So he's uh, adopting a post-millennial view with a preterist slant to it, uh, seeing much of the uh, much of the New Testament is focused on an, uh, a catastrophe that's just uh, in the near future for the writers of the New Testament. So he asks, does the Bible also speak of the end of the world? And what scriptures can we look for for the end of time? I think one answer to that uh, is uh, to look at the late chapters of, of Revelation. And of course, Revelation is in some ways a difficult book, but uh, I think that it's, there's a, I believe, and I, I made this case in my commentary on Revelation, that um, Revelation does have a narrative order to it. There's a sequence of events. It's not just kind of disconnected flashes of insight or, or, or even cycles. I think there's a development that's going on. Uh, and especially in the latter chapters, as we move from the fall of the harlot Babylon, this is in the third of the four great visions of Revelation. We move from the fall of the harlot in chapter 18 to the appearance of Jesus on the white horse as a triumphant in his triumphal procession. This is Jesus is riding in triumph over his enemies and executing his enemies. He raises up the saints and martyrs to their thrones. That's the beginning of chapter 20, and they reign for a thousand years. And then there is a, uh, there are events that take place after the thousand years are finished. In fact, that phrase, after the thousand years are finished, that's a phrase that's used in Revelation 20. Uh, and then you have the rebellion of Satan, you have a great judgment scene, and then you have the initial scene of the bridal city descending from heaven at the beginning of Revelation 21. I think that's all a sequence. And what it means is that there is such a thing as something that comes at uh, events that come after the millennium. So in Revelation, the millennium starts at the time of the fall of the harlot city and the triumph of Jesus and the conquest of his enemies, the enemies being the two beasts and the harlot. Once they're conquered, Satan is bound and then the millennium begins, but then there's a period after the millennium. And I think the latter part of chapter 20 and into the early part of chapter 21, all of that is is still to come. That's all prophecy that uh, envisions of what, what is still future for us. The other option, if you take a, real, a, a strict preterist view, then you have, to, you have to force the millennium into the period between uh, Jesus' death and resurrection and uh, 70 AD. So the millennium becomes not a symbol of a long period of time, but the millennium becomes a symbol of just basically a generation. And I think that on the face of it, that's just not a plausible interpretation of a, uh, the number, uh, the thousand years are clearly a symbolic period of time. The number is not literal, but uh, to say that it's a, it's just referring to a couple of decades, a few decades of time uh, is not plausible. If you have a thousand year period, that's a symbol of time. It's a symbol of a long time. So the millennium is a long period of time, but then there are things that happen after the millennium uh, that include a, re a final rebellion of Satan, a final victory over the dragon, uh, the final judgment, and then 
the uh, new heavens and the new earth descending from heaven. So the questioner asks, is there any uh, biblical passages that speak about the end of the world and the, or the end of time, the end of history? And surely there are. Um, so, for example, in John chapter 5, Jesus is talking about an hour that is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those here will live. Well, we understand that's a reference to what's happening uh, in his ministry and again, in the ministry of the apostles. But then immediately after that, he talks about authority given to him by his father to execute judgment. Do not marvel at this, verse 28, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This would have clearly been understood by the Jews of of the day, to be a reference to the end of history and the resurrection of the dead. Uh, And in John chapter 11, when Jesus is dealing with the death of Lazarus and speaking to his sisters, um, he talks to them. And at one point, um, who is it? Is it, let's see, who is it? It's Martha who says, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And uh, Jesus says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Um, so there's, there are a number of references like this. I think Acts chapter one, uh, where the angels tell the apostles that you'll see Jesus come again in the same way that he's left. Uh, there's Acts chapter 17, where Paul talks about a coming day when, uh, God will judge the world through Jesus who he's raised from the dead. Um, so this idea or this, this, um, uh, there are, there are a number of places in the scriptures that, that indicate that there will be a last day, an end of history, uh, a, a day of judgment, um, which will be the culmination of history. And then the movement into uh, the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection, the transfiguration of our bodies and also of the world. Without that, and, and I know that the preterists can be... Um, there are different, you know, varieties, different flavors of preterism, but I've noticed that um, in interacting with people in my church who were, were preterists and were here for a while and then realized that I wasn't going to be a full preterist, that they have this kind of dualistic understanding, and a lot of them don't even believe that there will be a resurrection of the body, that, uh, that we're just going to, you know, get raptured into heaven at death, well, not raptured, but get you know, translated into heaven at death, but, but there won't be any transfiguration, transformation of the physical world at all. Physical world is something that we escape from. And I think the other thing is you, you just, you run right into the, the historic creeds of the church, because all of them talk about Jesus coming again to judge the living and the dead, whether it's the apostles or the Nicene Creed. And, you know, we can get into this question about whether uh, the church fathers or whether the medieval theologians uh, had a proper understanding of, of the, the genuinely preteristic elements of the New Testament and seven, the importance of 70 AD, but you, you really don't want to butt up against the orthodoxy of the language of all the ecumenical creeds when it comes to Jesus coming at the end of the world and the resurrection of the dead. I think the text that you mentioned from John chapter 5 is is a very interesting one, because on the one hand, it talks about an hour that has already arrived when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. 
And then it talks about a future day that is coming when those in the tombs will hear the voice and will be raised. And what we're seeing there, I think, is there's this initial event that has already arrived that anticipates the future resurrection. And so within scripture, we read of the raising of the people to a new existence. So um, we read of the bringing people to new spiritual life, or we read of the first resurrection um, in the book of Revelation as events that have resurrection characters to them, but anticipate the future resurrection, the great resurrection that we're looking forward to. And I think this is a feature of biblical prophecy more generally, particularly if we're reading something like the book of Isaiah. Many people wonder what are the events that are being foretold, because sometimes it appears that there are different horizons of fulfillment, particularly when we consider the way that those prophecies are used within the New Testament. And here, I think, we can see what some have called the telescopic character of biblical prophecy. If you think about a telescope, you can expand it out and then you can contract it where things overlap with each other. And when we're thinking about the prophecies of Isaiah, we're thinking about the book of the 12, there is this condensed reality of something like the day of the Lord that becomes more expanded. It has a number of different reference. Um, there are particular events of judgment in Israel's history. We might think about the destruction of um, Jerusalem by Babylon. That would be one great day of the Lord. There are other days of the Lord. And yet all of those days of the Lord anticipate the greatest day of the Lord. You can think about this maybe as a sort of musical theme that's developing before its final climactic and complete presentation. And so we're having anticipatory glimpses of what this means. And each anticipatory glimpse is not substituting for or um, removing that referent of the final day of the Lord. It's anticipating and it's um, filling out that reality, helping us to long for that reality in a fuller way. And so when we think about great events of deliverance within the Old Testament, things like the Passover, those have, on the one hand, people are recalling what has happened in the past, but the energy and the inbuilt promise of that event is always anticipating some greater deliverance that will reveal the full reality that that was looking forward to. And so when we're reading these prophecies, we need to recognize many of them are not completely fulfilled in their initial horizons. And there's a sense of they're being almost overstated. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who will hear will live. There is something taking place there that is being presented as an anticipation of resurrection, but it's not full resurrection yet. And so I think when we go through the New Testament, it's very clear we're waiting for the final judgment of all. We're waiting for the general resurrection. We're waiting for the renewal of all things, the defeat of death and Satan. And there are a number of events along the way that are reality-filled promises of that future. And as such, they um, form the shape of our hope. There's things that embolden us in our confidence of that future. And they propel us toward that future, each one of them like a wave that's moving us towards that future shore. And so we're always waiting for something greater than that which has already occurred. But that which has occurred is something that gives us a sense of what we're anticipating. I think one, one uh, kind of general way to make the point is to say that uh, 
right from the beginning, uh, God's work in history and time has a, a terminus. It has a, a you think of the creation week. It has a terminus, a terminus a quo, a time from which or a moment from which things begin. It had as a terminus ad quem toward which it goes, comes, culminates in Sabbath. And there's a, so, I'm, you know, there's kind of an Augustinian point here that the, uh, creation account is a prefiguration of a uh, whole of history. I don't, I don't follow Augustine in the uh, particulars of that, but I think the, the general point is true. And you have the creation account is already a kind of preview of the shape of human history, which means that there is a kind of closure. There's a kind of final word. There's a kind of, there's a final enthronement uh, that is uh, prefigured in the Sabbath first Sabbath and is culminated with the uh, final, final judgment and God's final, enthronement in his creation. A listener is asking again for um, biblical passages, scriptures, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, It's pretty clear uh, here, beginning in verse 23, each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, he's talking about the resurrection here, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, the terminus, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to destroy is death. Um, I, I, what many full preterists do with 1 Corinthians 15 is, to me, unconscionable. I mean, it, it, they, they, they think somehow that this is all about a figurative uh, resurrection, that the body discussed here uh, later on in this chapter is um, figurative of the body of Christ after 70 AD. Um, the, the exegetical gymnastics they have to engage in for that um, just uh, are awful for me. I don't, I don't get that. This is a passage about uh, the resurrection of the dead at the end of history and what, what God will do um, in glorifying our material bodies. Um, that's the whole point of the chapter. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the, that's the passage where, as you said before, there's a kind of spiritualization or there's an almost a quasi-gnostic recoil from flesh that's kind of built into the, to the uh, uh, strict, pre- uh, the complete preterist or consistent preterist view. You have to interpret 1 Corinthians 15 as something already fulfilled, which means that you can't interpret it as a bodily event, an event that happens to bodies that are put in the ground like seeds and then spring up as more glorious uh, realities, uh, which is exactly the analogy that Paul uses. Uh, We're like seeds going into the body, uh, going into the ground, and then uh, who knows uh, what kind of glory we'll have when we spring up. You can't can't tell by looking at a seed what the tree is going to look like, Uh, and you can't know the glory of our bodies from the current seed form that we have, the seminal form that we now exist in. Uh, so, and that's exactly the analogy that you're using. So, yeah, I, I think that's that's a great passage uh, for highlighting the the theological import and the theological problems, the theological pressure that you have if you're going to be a, a full preterist. Let me move on to another question. Uh, a reader asks, "What should the church be doing against abortion?" Obviously, this is a in the United States. This is a uh, uh, a current question, the, the, there's a Mississippi case before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has already had a hearing on, uh, and um, it will be releasing some kind of decision later this year. The hubbub on the 
uh, among conservatives in the states is that uh, the court is going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, I'll believe that when I see it. I think there's, I'm, I'm much more skeptical that uh, the court is that that firm in order to do that or that willing to uh, live with the reputational consequences of making that decision and also with what would certainly be social and political upheavals that would come with that. And I'm, my uh, worry is that they'll take what seems like the safe way out uh, and um, you know go with precedent as they have before. We now have uh, have had an abortion regime for half century, and so you know best to keep it as it is. It's not good. Nobody likes it particularly, but we have to keep it as it is so that we don't disrupt things too much. I'm afraid that the court is going to end up in that in that kind of situation, but um, maybe not. Maybe this is a this is a time to, that uh, Roe v. Wade will actually be overturned. What, what I want to say about that, I'll get to other things about how the church can respond to this, but I'll just say a word about what uh, what 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 the consequences are if Roe v. Wade uh, is overturned. Obviously, the political consequences, the legal consequences is that uh, abortion gets returned to the states. And then you have battles in different states over abortion law. Some states are already poised to pass uh, uh, pro-life amendments. Alabama would be one. Uh, most of the, Many of the southern states already have um, laws that are ready to pass that would protect unborn across the board. Um, uh, the other states, there'd be a major political battle. Obviously certain states would probably institutionalize, uh, the right to abortion in their constitutions. Uh, so th- there would be a, a smattering of, of, uh, and a, and a patchwork of abortion law across the country. Uh, we can see that as a victory. And in certain ways it is because at least in some states, unborn babies are being protected. But I think that the, uh, overall, uh, situation there is still uh, horrific and barbaric. And I think we, we need to realize that um, I, I, I don't want a country, I don't want, I don't want our country to tolerate the, the killing of any, any unborn children. Um, the, uh, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't get a lot of relief from the idea that, well, at least some states are not killing unborn children anymore. But you can go to the adjoining state and you can kill your unborn child. Um, that still is uh, a situation where uh, innocent blood is flowing. Uh, God is still uh, a, an avenger of innocent blood. God is a protector of the orphan. Uh, and uh, I think we're still, even in that situation, uh, we, can't, uh, we can't say that we have relief. And I think part of, part of the issue has to do with recognizing just how uh, deeply corrupting uh, the abortion regime has been. Uh, uh, Robert Jensen makes this point in his systematic theology when he's talking about the sixth commandment. And he makes the point that uh, what happens with the legalization of abortion is not just a, uh, a, a protection of women's rights over their own bodies. He sees it as a reversion to just a different form of political uh, and legal order. Cause uh, uh, I mean, you can look at uh, uh, you can look at the um, um, the uh, the Escalin, uh, the the uh, Orestian trilogy by Aeschylus, and what you see in the Orestian trilogy is a a move from uh, rule by blood vengeance, and that's the way that uh, that's the way that uh, that uh, that uh, crimes are handled by people who are have interests, uh, especially kin, taking vengeance against those who have attacked their kin. 
And you have a shift from that to a legal system. At the end of the Arresting Trilogy, you have a legal system in Athens. It's endorsed by Athena. And now you're going to have a trial system where um, they have, uh, you have uh, legal constraints. And uh, Jensen suggests that you have a reversal of that. You, you return the power to kill into the hands of the most interested parties in the situation. That is the mother who finds the, the, uh, the uh, pregnancy inconvenient, a boyfriend or father who finds it uh, inconvenient. Uh, and you give the power to kill back into the hands of people who have vested interests in, in, uh, in killing rather than removing it from their hands and putting it in the hands of people who have, who have more distant from the immediate situation. So I think that's just one example of how corrupting abortion is to the whole legal and political system. Uh, and I think uh, we need to be careful of being too relieved if the court does bring, uh, bring down a reversal of Roe. I think that's, there's still, uh, we're still in a situation where we need to plead with God for mercy uh, and we need to work for a, a nation where abortion is simply not, not allowed at all. And those kinds of comments, those kinds of convictions need to be in the church expressed uh, from the pulpit, from the lectern, um, in conversations with people. Also, the church needs to encourage those that do have authority that are in legislature or in government um, to do the right thing, to uh, engage, um, engage in you know, whatever sphere they're in to, to work towards the abolishment of, to, to abolish uh, abortion. Um, and also, in addition to that, I think we need to be careful. And I, I don't know that we do this very well, at least I'm thinking of our church and our churches. Um, there are millions and millions and millions and millions of women who've had abortions. Um, and how do we minister to them? How, how is the church doing a good job of uh, dealing with the guilt uh, and the, um, the psychological uh, kinds of repercussions that that creates in them? I, I don't know that we are. Then also the other thing is we need to encourage people uh, that can to adopt, um, adopt babies. Now, interestingly, we've had to disengage from supporting a couple of pretty prominent evangelical adoption agencies recently because they have given in to the government's pressure on them uh, to um, uh, place children into homosexual marriage, uh, homosexual families situations. So that's a challenge. And then the other thing I'd say about uh, what the church should do is pray. I mean, the, ch the church is one of the church's main functions is to petition God uh, for justice. And we should have in our prayers regularly a petition for God to execute his justice uh, against those in the abortion industry who are uh, manipulating and abusing women um, and misleading them. Um, and then, of course, killing babies. That ought to be part of our prayer regiment in the corporate assembly of God's people. I think when we're um, discussing the role of the church, we need to remember there are many different agencies um, that have that Christians can exercise against something like abortion. OK, 
can think about Christians who become involved in politics, Christians who are involved in um, pressure groups, in forming laws, in um, providing um, for mothers who need to have a support structure around them. I think one of the areas that we should probably reflect upon is the degree to which contemporary society creates a situation where there is a demand for abortion by um, putting women in a situation where often um, not having children or getting rid of their children is an entry ticket to full participation in society. Society is not hospitable to children. It's not hospitable to um, the sort of non-fungible goods that are involved in forming a, a home. And it makes it very difficult when, um, first of all, just economic pressures and beyond those economic pressures, the sort of social pressures of having a standing in society when mothers don't have honour within society in the same way as someone who's um, pursuing a career. That, I think, is one area where the church needs to be very aware of the role that it can play in, first of all, casting a different vision, representing a different sort of community that stands against those social pressures, that presents the home, the household, the mother at the heart of society, not just as pushed to the periphery in a society that's built around individuals pursuing their own economic maximalization. And there, I think, the church can have some of its most powerful witness as people see that there is a different way of, of acting within the world and living that may not have been something that they could have imagined had they not seen it being lived out. And the church can also be a place where there is, beyond the ministries that we have of word, a community of support where we recognize that we're not going to pit vulnerable people against each other. We recognize the pressures that are upon different parties. And we also recognize that abortion can, in many instances, be a sort of escape valve for lots of different injustices within society as a whole. To kill an infant is an incredibly serious crime and sin. And yet, we can often have a society that tolerates pushing people towards those sorts of extreme sins because we're just not hospitable to life as we should be. Now, as Christians, I think there has been so much work done in providing for um, mothers who need these sorts of support structures, providing alternative, alternative structures and communities that will enable them to go through with a pregnancy, providing for adoption, providing for the companionship and the mentoring and the, um, all these different things that will enable a mother to go through with a pregnancy. And I think we need to focus on many of these different things at once. We need to fight the legal battle. We need to pray against, use imprecatory prayer in these situations. We need to preach against these sorts of injustices. We need to vote and act politically in a way that makes change. But we also need to cast this different social vision to form these supporting institutions and structures and to present ourselves as part of the solution in a society that just is not hospitable to the weakest, 
whether that's the isolated mother or her unborn child. Yeah, great points, Alistair. Um, and that that's, uh, dovetails with what I said about the uh, corrupting influences of abortion It's and, and the way that abortion is linked into all kinds of other social and political pathologies. Um, I just want to highlight something. From, Mary Harrington had an essay in Unher- on the unheard.com website where she was tracing, I think this was a speech she gave somewhere, um, tracing the development of feminism. And she sees an early conflict between, between a more family-centered and home-centered kind of feminism and, and a more individualistic kind of feminism. She says that the thing that uh, ensured the triumph of the individualistic feminism was contraception and the uh, uh, availability of abortion. Um, uh, that, that, uh, uh, that, that ensured the triumph of what she, she doesn't think it's feminism at all. She calls it bio-libertarianism. Uh, but let me, let me read a little, little summary of what she's saying about that. A medical control of fertility ensured individualistic feminine, feminism would win out Individualist feminists viewed legal abortion as a necessary precondition for personhood and free agency, ironically assuming a liberal male-centric understanding of the person as a radically separate individual. To be an individual, women must have total ownership of all those aspects of our bodies that differ from those of males. When total autonomy is confronted with an unwanted unborn baby, uh, autonomy wins. So there's a, again, there's a, there, there are multiple confusions in that uh, women think that to be free, they need to be free to kill their babies. They need to be free from the peculiar gifts that God has given to them as women, uh, the bodily, uh, the the physical potential to bear a child. They need to be liberated from that in order to be fully an individual. And uh, uh, Harrington, again, sees that as a a crucial turning point in the, the development of Uh, of, of American feminism. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.